All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to have you here. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2. We're going to be wrapping up the second chapter of Revelation this morning. We'll be in chapter 3 starting next week. To all of you online, good morning and welcome. Glad that you are tuning in here live with us. To all of those of you who are watching this anytime after right now, praying for you, slacker. Uh, I'm just kidding. Shots fired, but just kidding. It's all right. Hey, so, you know, if you've been around here for uh, any amount of time, you have probably heard our dear senior pastor James talk about life in West Texas. Grew up in West Texas, the the old dusty Monahans, Texas. It was God's country at one time, time, certainly a long time ago. you, you encounter a lot of things in West Texas, right? Some good, some bad, mostly bad. Um, one of the bad things that you encounter in West Texas is snakes. You've heard Reeves talk a lot about snakes through the years, particularly rattlesnakes. James has a history with rattlesnakes. And let me just say this, that the rattlesnakes typically don't fare well against him. Uh, do you have your eye patch? No, you have the black eye patch on today. I was hoping you'd wear the snakeskin eye patch today. Uh, he actually has one of those. I've got one. <laughs> he does have one. Now, I uh, did not only, grow up. I only wear it when I want people to leave me alone. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't leave you alone. I would ask more questions about it. I think it's pretty awesome myself. I didn't grow up in West Texas, but I did spend a lot of time in East Texas, particularly Sulphur Springs. We had a lot of land when I was a kid. My dad and his brothers shared some land out there. And we didn't deal too much with rattlesnakes, but we did deal with a couple of other kinds of snakes that are uh, uh, equally problematic. Cottonmouth was one of them. As you may know, the water moccasin is how we uh, typically refer to them around here. And then perhaps even more uh, scary in my mind, only because they're smaller and typically hide in the leaves, copperheads, copperheads. Um, we dealt a lot with, with both of those kinds of snakes on the land that I spent a lot of my childhood on. And as a native Texan, it's important to know some things about snakes. You need to have some information about snakes, and you need the right information about snakes. Uh, I was told at one point that snakes will strike about half the distance of their body, half the length of their body. That's true if they are going to recoil afterwards, but if they really want to reach out and touch you, they'll give about three quarters of their body. Is that right, Stephen? I have a guy over here who's like a snake expert, so uh, I should have, yeah, mostly. Okay. Um, there's another, there's another type of venomous snake in Texas, the Texas coral snake, uh, very small, hollow fangs, um, very powerful venom, although pretty rare. In fact, the only, uh, the only way you will likely get bitten by one of them is if you are trying to hold it because you think it is a scarlet king snake because they look very similar. They're both black, red, and yellow, but they could not be more different, right? The scarlet king snake, totally harmless. The Texas coral, very harmful, but there is a, a, a very important difference between the two kinds of snakes. They both have the same colors, red, yellow, black, but they have different patterns that these colors are organized in. There's a little saying in Texas, probably in other parts of the world as well, red on yellow, kill a fellow, red on black, friend of Jack. In other words, if the red color touches the yellow color, get away from it. Don't touch it. Don't get near it. It will likely harm you if you are bitten by it. If the red touches black, Still don't probably touch it. Leave them alone. They didn't do anything to you, but, but they're not that harmful. They won't get you. There's a good principle here, though. There's a good principle when we're thinking about snakes in Texas, and that is that believing 
the incomplete or false information about something can be deadly. Maybe not always, but it can be. It is potentially deadly to believe incomplete or false information about something. It is true for snakes. It is even more true for spiritual matters. Uh, being wrong about a snake could cost you uh, a hand or an arm or perhaps your physical life. Being wrong about spiritual things could cost you eternity. We have to be careful. We can't just buy whatever we hear. We can't just listen and take in whatever we hear as truth. But we have to search it out in the Word of God. We have to go to the Scriptures to make sure that we're getting the whole truth. Now, this morning, we are continuing in a series that we began uh, now three weeks ago uh, called Seven, Seven, where we are talking about the seven words to the seven churches of Asia Minor that Jesus delivers in Revelation chapters two and three. The first week, we talked about Ephesus, and the word that Jesus gave was return, return. He says, you have departed from your first love. And so he calls them back, return to me, come back to me. The second week we talked about the church in Smyrna, and the word there was remain. In other words, be faithful no matter what is happening in your life. They, they were facing some pretty intense persecution, and Jesus says, be faithful, remain steadfast there where you are, where I have placed you. Last week we talked about the church in Pergamum, and the word there was recognize, recognize where you have compromised in your life and then be willing to repent of that compromise and move back into truth. This morning, we get to the church in Thyatira, and the word that Jesus has for the church in Thyatira is the word resist. Resist. Resist believing false information that could be deadly to you. Resist false teachers who have crept up in your midst. And so, a really powerful passage. I hope you have your Bibles with you. We begin this morning with a description of Jesus. If you remember last, when we started the series, I mentioned to you that the book of Revelation opens in chapter 1 with a, an, a metaphorical and analogous description, a symbolic description of Jesus. And if you read chapter 1 of Revelation, it's very obvious that Jesus is being presented in his resurrected and ascended form to the right hand of the Father with all of the authority of heaven and earth. He's the first and the last. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. And these, these descriptions that are given of him in chapter 1 are awe-inspiring. And it's interesting that in chapter uh, 2, where he's, he's speaking to this particular church, that in, in Thyatira, that he goes back to a part of that description, and there's a reason why, because it has something to do with the message that he wants to deliver to the church in Thyatira. So in, in verse 18, Jesus returns to that description, and he gives two things that are very important about what he's going to say to this church. First of all, Jesus is once again presented, as he was in chapter 1, as one who has eyes, <clears throat> excuse me, like, uh, like flame of fire. Now that is stated also in chapter 1. And this image of fire and eyes like fire is not talking about your wife when she's angry with you, but it is obviously communicating that Jesus has this all-consuming vision, that he has this penetrating gaze because fire penetrates, and so what is being communicated here to this church is that so also does the vision of Jesus penetrate beneath the surface, and it misses absolutely 
nothing. It cuts through everything that is eternal, external, and sees to the core of the issue. In other words, what you could say is that Jesus sees beyond the facade. And we're very good at presenting something on the outside that's not true, really, of what's going on in the inside. And we may fool other people, but we never fool the Lord Jesus because he has these eyes that penetrate like flames of fire. So he can see through all of the formality. He can see through everything that is on the outside and see the failure that is really going on on the inside. And so then he's able to call us out at that particular point. So in verse 19, he starts off after saying, okay, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, he says in verse 19 that there are some things that are going on in your midst that are good, some things that are praiseworthy. And so this is what he says. He says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, and how, get this, how your deeds of late are even greater than they were before. In other words, Jesus says, okay, I see this stuff going on on the outside, and I know the good things that you are doing. In fact, I understand that those are even increasing now more than they were in the beginning. So obviously, Jesus' problem with what's going on here isn't about their good deeds. It's not about their works. It's not about the external things that they're involved in. No. Obviously, they didn't have a problem with being lazy. They had plenty of energy for service. But all of that stuff is external stuff. But remember his description. But he has eyes like a flame of fire. He sees beyond that. So in verse 20... He says what he's seeing. When his eyes penetrate, he says, this is what I'm seeing. You are tolerating the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. So in essence, what he's saying, he says, you know, I see beyond the outside. I don't have a problem with what's going on on the outside. But what I see inside is in, beneath the surface is that you're tolerating false teaching in your midst. And an awful lot like he said to the church at Pergamum last week. As a matter of fact, out of the first four churches, three of them have been upbraided by Jesus because false teaching was beginning to make its way into their midst. It, has, it was already starting early on in the life of the church. So we shouldn't be surprised by it today, should we? We shouldn't be surprised by false teaching making its inroads into the church because it started very early on. In fact, it was starting even while Jesus was on the earth. Now, in a moment, we're going to dig in a little bit more and examine a little more closely what he means by this tolerating this woman Jezebel and, and all this. But for right now, just get the big idea. The big idea is that Jesus is not only interested in what we do. Jesus is interested in what we believe. Now hang on that, hang on to that. That doesn't sound revolutionary, but it is something that we really need to grasp. Jesus is not only interested in what we do, but he is also interested in what we believe. This truth today is so incredibly important for us to grasp. Why is that? Because so much of the false teaching that is around us today, that's on the airways, that's in the pulpits of churches, that's on the streets, so much of the false doctrine that is being perpetrated is done hand in hand with lots of good works. 
lots of things that when you look at them, well, gosh, that's wonderful that they're doing that. And, and I hear this from church members a great deal and people out there that, you know, we'll point out a particular false teacher because their doctrine is askew and, and, and they've, they've, they've uh, created a, a caricature of the gospel and a caricature of the person of Jesus Christ. But, and then people will say, but man, look at the ministry of this person. Look at all the good stuff they're doing. They're feeding the poor. They have a prison ministry. Man, they're going in there and, 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 and visiting the, the, those who are in prison and they're helping widows and they're, doing all, and they're building housing for people that are homeless. And I go, well, sure they are. Sure they are. That's the cover. That's the cover that the enemy always uses for his false teaching. If they weren't doing all those good things, a whole lot fewer people would be willing to listen to them, wouldn't they? Is that true? Is there anybody here? Many, many fewer people would be attracted to them because most people are not attracted initially because of what they're saying, but they are attracted because of what they are doing. And that is the bait that draws their prey. Jesus told us, don't be shocked by that. Don't be surprised by that. Get it together, folks. The enemy comes as a wolf telling you that he's going to destroy you and rip you to shreds. Is that what Jesus said? No, no. Jesus says the enemy comes as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And it is the sheep's clothing to which we are attracted, but underneath that is the wolf in the form of false doctrine that leads us astray. And so Jesus says, I have eyes like flame of fire. I look beneath the things that are being said and the things that are being done, and I can see the error that is there. The second image he uses is that he has feet like burnished bronze. Again, this is an image that is introduced to us in chapter 1. And what is it? Well, it's reminding us of something because bronze in the scripture often is used to symbolize the judgment of God. You go, why would that be? Well, because at this particular time, 2,000 years ago, bronze was the hardest metal that man known to mankind. Now, we've gone way beyond it now in 2,000 years, but at that time, if you wanted the hardest metal you could get, then it was fashioned and formed out of bronze. And so bronze came to be a symbol because of its firmness, because of its strength of the judgment of God. He's reminding them, not only do I see beyond the works, but I see the cancer that's beginning to take place with this woman Jezebel and her false teaching. But I also want to un help you understand that judgment, my judgment is coming. So in essence... If you just want to put it in West Texas terminology, Jesus is saying, if you don't stop tolerating Jezebel's false teaching, I'm going to come and stomp a mud hole in you. Now, that's just the way we would say it, you know, where I grew up. I'm just going to stomp a mud hole in you. If you don't stop tolerating this, I have feet of bronze and my judgment is coming. Now, immediately, those of you that are bibliophiles and you really understand the scripture, you're, immediately, you're going, well, God's judgment doesn't ever come on these people. That's not what the scripture says. As a matter of fact, there are two forms of judgment in the Scripture. There is eternal judgment, yes, then that comes only upon those who have rejected Christ. God's eternal judgment never comes upon us in Christ. Why? Because Jesus took our eternal judgment for sin right on the cross. 
So yes, in that sense, eternal judgment is never coming upon the people of God. But there's another kind of judgment in the Scripture that you better understand, and that is temporal judgment. And that is referring to the disciplining hand of God that comes upon His people. People who know Jesus, people who are never going to experience the eternal judgment of God, we will have the capacity, we do have the capacity of experiencing God's temporal judgment in the form of His disciplining hand. We need to get that. We all love to uh, quote Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what that's talking about? Eternal condemnation. God will never condemn us in Christ to eternal judgment because we are in Christ. But I want to tell you, you don't skip over those passages in the New Testament where the disciplining hand of God comes upon His people. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 4, the Scripture says that it is time for the judgment of God to begin with the household of God. God's judgment begins with us. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He's comparing eternal judgment with temporal judgment. He's saying, man, if God's judgment on His people in the form of His disciplining hand is as difficult as it is sometimes, imagine what the eternal judgment of God is going to be like. God's judgment begins with us. It's going to end and consummate in eternity with eternal judgment on those who reject Christ, but it is right now with us in the form of His disciplining hand as our loving Heavenly Father. But here's the point. Jesus does not evaluate us, folks, only on the basis of what we do. It isn't about good works. He evaluates us on the basis of what we believe. So don't evaluate false teachers just because of the good things that they do. Evil people can do good things. Good people can do evil things. The external is not the basis upon which he who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet of bronze decides upon. He looks deeper. Is that clear? Is that clear? So that's Jesus' description. He's, he's sending a message to his church in the first century, and he's sending a message to us. Look, look I, I, the great, good things you're doing, they're great. They're, but here's this problem that I can see beneath the service, and it is the teaching of this woman Jezebel, and if you do not get this out of your midst, if you do not resist this, I'm going to stomp a mud hole in the, right in the middle of you. Not for eternity. My son Jesus took that, but I'm going to make your present be like hell in order to communicate to you that I will not tolerate this. That's a, you don't hear that on TV a lot, do you? That, I mean, that... That doesn't get 45,000 people gathered in a stadium on Sunday morning, does it? To remind them that Jesus is not just concerned with all of this external stuff. He's looking, he's, what do you believe? What are you doing? What are you tolerating in your very mess? So Jesus gives this description, okay? Then he moves to a denouncement of this false teaching in the sense that he begins to explain what he means. So in verse 20, he says, I have this against you. And he went on. I have this against you because you are tolerating this woman, Jezebel, 
who is leading my people astray. Right there in the church, right there in your very midst. Now, Jezebel. I really doubt her name was really Jezebel. I mean, let's get real, folks. First century people did not have a baby girl and say, oh, what a beautiful baby girl. Let's name her Jezebel. No, 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 no. No, the name of Jezebel was very common. It was very well known, the Old Testament Jezebel, very well known among God's people. It'd be like you have a little baby boy and say, well, let's name him Judas. Thank you, Mom and Dad, for strapping me with that name for the rest of my life. So Jesus is not saying her name is, tip, is literally Jezebel, but he's drawing an analogy. And let me tell you something. Derek said this to his Revelation class on Wednesday night that, by the way, just finished. If you don't understand the Old Testament, you'll never have a hope of understanding anything in the book of Revelation. Because the Revelation is given and is couched in the imagery of the Old Testament. And so Jesus' hearers would have immediately understood what he was talking about when he brings up this name of Jezebel. Because there are at least three parallels with the Jezebel of the Old Testament and what false teaching does. So walk with me for a moment through them. First and second Kings in the Old Testament is where Jezebel's story is told. First of all, Jezebel was self-appointed. She just appointed herself the ruler or the leader of God's people in the Old Testament. Verse 12, verse 20, he said, this woman in your midst <clears throat> calls herself a prophetess. This Jezebel calls herself a prophetess. In other words, she's self-appointed. She's just declared, I am a prophet of God. Now, if you go back to First and Second Kings, and read the real story of the real Jezebel, who she is is she's actually the wife of the king of Israel, King Ahab at the time, who was the king of Israel. And Ahab, well, for lack of a better term, Ahab was just completely weak sauce, okay? I mean, he was just weak sauce. He was a man of incredibly weak, weak character. Well, Jezebel was exactly the opposite of that, and so Jezebel kind of rose up and took over. Even while her husband is still alive, Jezebel is actually functioning, in essence, as the king of Israel. God did not appoint her. The people did not appoint her. She appointed herself on the strength of her will and the strength of her personality. And then what Jezebel did is she proceeded to lead Israel into the worship of a pagan god by the name of Baal. And Baal was one of the main gods of the pagan nations around Israel that they worshipped. And God was always saying, do not bow to Baal. Don't do that. Don't bow to the false god. Well, Jezebel, she just decided, okay, I'm going to be the leader of these people. And then she began to lead them into the worship of this false god. So you and I have to look at this and go, well, what's the application for us? Well, let me, here it is. When you look at a teacher, ask yourself this question. Who appointed them? Who appointed? The, is this someone who just one day decided, you know what, I'm just going to be a preacher. I'm just going to be a pastor. I'm just going to be a prophet. And I'm going to speak the words of God. Ask yourself the question, who appointed this person? In other words, another question that will follow that up, who is this person even accountable to? 
If they're self-appointed, they're not going to submit themselves in accountability to anybody. And you'll, with many of the false teachers today, you'll have to look really, really deep to look through and cut through the smoke to find out who appointed them. And nine times out of ten, you will find that they were not appointed by anyone. They are self-appointed. And therefore, they are not accountable to anyone. So Jezebel, as a false teacher, was self-appointed. Second of all, she was very seductive. Jesus said, she teaches and leads my servants astray. So she was very seductive in her teachings and the way that she presented them, that many of those who were true believers there were moving back into and moving away from the truth of the gospel and were moving into this false teaching. And why is that? Get this, folks. False teaching today is always seductive. If it doesn't appeal, no one goes there, do they? You think about that. What is it seducing to? What is it appealing to? False teaching is always appealing to the flesh, to the sin nature, to that within us that Paul says we fight this spiritual battle between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is the old nature that wants to be God and, and wants for self, and the spirit is a new nature of Christ, and there is a spiritual war that is going on. False teaching always doesn't appeal to the spirit, although it's couched as that. It always is making an appeal to the flesh. For instance, take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me does not get big crowds. Why? Because that does not appeal to my flesh. It just doesn't appeal to my flesh. Let me tell you what does appeal to my flesh, our sin nature. If you just have enough faith, you can get God to give you anything you want. Now you, you compare those two messages. One of them is the truth of the gospel. The other one is the false teaching of Jezebel. And it is seductive because it appeals to something in me that if I had my way, this is how it would be. That's my sin nature. I want it my way. I, I want everything that I, my flesh wants, and I want it on my rules. I want it on, on my basis. I don't want it on God's. I don't want to get married. I just want to have sex. I don't want to be poor. I want to be rich. So if God says, take up your cross and deny yourself, deny that flesh and follow me, well, that doesn't appeal to my flesh. That can only appeal to the Spirit of God. But when a false teacher stands and says, you can get anything you want from God if you just have enough faith. See, there's the spiritual covering. There's the, the sheep. But underneath it, there is a wolf of false teaching. Are you getting this, folks? False teaching, Jezebel, they're always seductive because they, their message, though it's couched in the wool of a sheep, it's not appealing to the things of God. It's not appealing to the Spirit of God. It is appealing to the flesh. And that's why many false teachers today are very, very successful. Now get this, because their teaching is very seductive. Now here's what good people do, and I've, I've heard this a million times. Good people look at that, look at how successful they are in getting a following, and they say, well, God must be blessing them. Amen. Have you heard that? Have you even thought that? 
Well, how could they be doing what they're doing if God wasn't blessing them? That's not the blessing of God. God does not put his blessing upon heresy. He does not put his blessing upon false teaching and false doctrine. And then here's what the false teacher does. This is so interesting that people can't see through this. They live such a lavish lifestyle and then they point themselves to the proof of their teaching. So if you have enough faith in God, you can live like I do. If you just give that seed money of faith to me, then God is going to multiply it and you'll get to live like I do. Is that incredible or what? And people follow that stuff. You know why? Because it appeals to the flesh. Not the spirit that says, no, I need to deny myself for the cause of the kingdom of God. No, 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 that doesn't draw a big crowd because that's the truth. What draws the crowd is when it's, no, 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 you can be God. Ultimately, in essence, you can get anything that you want. Folks, success by numbers and material success is not a sign of God's blessing. It can be, but it is not a sign of God's blessing. You've got to learn to look beyond the external and look underneath. And that's what Jesus is saying. Listen here, i got eyes like flame of fire. I can see what's going on there. And I've got feet like burnished bronze. And I'm fixing to stomp a mud hole in you if you don't stop tolerating this woman Jezebel in your midst who is leading my people astray with her seductiveness. And the third characteristic, and I, I wrote this, put it this way simply because it alliterated very well. False teaching is quote-unquote scholarly. Now, now hang with me for a minute. I don't mean that it's good scholarship, but I mean it is always presented as something that is kind of a new truth. And in fact, verse 24 Jesus refers to the teachings of Jezebel as she's teaching the deep things of Satan. Now, that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, kind of a sarcastic, because I guarantee you what Jezebel was saying is what false teachers are saying is, look, I've got some truth here that you're not getting anywhere else, and you listen to this truth, and I'm going to give you this truth. It's the deep things of God. Jesus says, no, it's not. It's the deep things of Satan. You see, during the first century, there was this heresy that was, oh, it was humongous. And we don't have time to go into everything it taught, but it was called the, the Gnostic heresy. It is addressed over and over in the New Testament letters to the churches because Gnosticism always tried to find its way into the New Testament church. And one of the things that was characteristic of the Gnostics that made them seductive and because they presented themselves as being very knowledgeable, okay, in fact, so knowledgeable that they said, we have a knowledge that is only given to those who are initiated. It's only given to those few that are willing to look deep underneath everything and get this truth. And Gnosticism was always saying, go deeper, go deeper. We've got this deeper truth. Most of the people out there aren't getting it, but you follow us and we'll give you this deeper truth. Now, you listen to a lot of these false teachers today and you will hear them saying, you know, we're, we're, we're telling you things that most people out there that call themselves Christians just don't understand. They don't get it. But we've got the truth here, and you just listen to this, and we will teach you how to get everything that God wants for you. Let me give you a truth, and I believe it is true. If it is true, or if it is new, it is not true. Let me say that again. If it is new... It is not true. You know why? Because there is no new truth. God's word is truth. It's given to us. Jesus is truth. 
He has been fully revealed. There is no hidden new truth. So when I hear a teacher say, this is a catchphrase that sounds spiritual and people typically don't look beneath the meaning of this, last night God revealed this truth to me. Have you heard him say that? I was in a vision, in a dream last night. God revealed this truth to me and I'm going to give it to all of you who are my followers. I brace myself when I hear God reveal this truth to me. I brace myself for false teaching. Because you know what? I know if it's new, it is not true. Now, if, it's, if, if, there, if, if this individual is saying, God reveals something about myself that is not good that I need to change, I think that's probably the Spirit of God. If it's about their flesh, then that's probably the Spirit of God. But if it is some new truth that is just now being unveiled for those who are listening, close your ears. I just think of the arrogance of that kind of statement. Are you going to have time to finish? Hopefully. Okay. Oh, we still got 15 minutes. Now think of the arrogance of that. For 2,000 years, God's people have followed Jesus and have studied His Word. They've followed Him who is truth, and have studied and looked into His Word, which is truth. But just now, God revealed this new truth to this teacher. You kidding me? Really sucked to know Jesus before you got this one, didn't it? I mean, it really sucked to spend all of that time studying God's truth, and He had it hidden all the time. And i got to get it. From this idiot today. Think of the arrogance of that. Who is this person accountable to? Who appointed them? How do you check that out? Who, who, who's looking over their shoulder and saying, no, 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 buddy. You can't do that. You can't say that. You can't go there. That is wrong. Who's doing that? Nobody. Nobody. You see, we can find new ways of communicating truth. There's no doubt about it. We obviously can find new ways of applying God's truth that is revealed because He's constantly, His Word is living and is active in us all the time. But these statements of new truth are always couched in the language of a deeper truth. You're going to get this deeper truth if you trust me. You're going to get this deeper truth if you just Listen to me. It's almost, and, and I listen to these teachers. I do for comic relief sometimes, but I also listen to them just because I want to know what is the next false doctrine that's finding its way in the church. It's almost as if these teachers become bored with God's truth. And it becomes like a competition among these TV preachers about who can come up with the newest and the coolest truth. Because, you know, kind of bored with the, the story of the cross, aren't we? Now, we wouldn't say that. We're kind of bored with the story of the spirit-filled life that means obedience and self-denial, and we're just kind of bored with that. And so in order to get a bigger audience and get more offerings, I need to come up with something new and fresh because so, people are kind of bored with that old story. And so it just seems like a competition all the time is rolling out there. Well, who can come up with the newest truth to get a, a new following? Hebrews 13, verse 9, 
God's word says to us, do not be carried away by strange teachings. Do not be carried away by strange teachings. Listen, folks, if it is new, it is not true. There is no new truth. God has fully revealed himself in his son, Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and he has revealed in his word. There is no new truth. But you see, false teachers come like Jezebel, self-appointed, not really accountable to anyone, very seductive, very charismatic, if you will, and I mean in the sense of personality, and very scholarly. Man, I'm in touch with God. I'm in touch with the deeper things, and if you want the deeper stuff, you're going to have to get it from me. That's what was going on in this church in Thyatira. It's what's going on in the church today. Nothing is new under the sun. The enemy still does his work under the cloak of spiritual teachings that appeal to the flesh. Now Derek's going to come and bring us in for a landing. As believers, we have a decision to make. Will we reject false teaching and will we follow the truth? You know, as you were talking, James, I was thinking about uh, Joseph Smith, the uh, founder of Mormonism. And uh, for those of you who are free Wednesday nights, we're going to be doing a cults class in about six weeks. And uh, Mormonism is one of the things we talk about. Joseph Smith's favorite Bible verse was James chapter 1. If anyone of you lacks wisdom, let him ask, and it will be given. And that's what he said is, uh, I lack wisdom, and, and I asked, and God revealed a new thing to me. And Mormonism was born. It's dangerous. This is how it happens. Anything that is new is often not true. So how do we reject this? How do we know how to reject false teaching? How do we know that something is false? That's, I mean, these are good questions that we need to ask. Two things that I will give you this morning, and we'll try to do this quickly so we get out of here on time. Number one is we hold fast to his words. We hold fast to Jesus' words. We need to know what Jesus said, don't we? Now, where do we learn Jesus' words? Yeah, the Bible, Scripture, absolutely. Yeah, you, you, you can talk. It, it's okay. It, we can talk here. I know we're way out of practice, like six months, but you can engage with us a little bit. Um, yeah, hold fast to his words. We do that by reading the Scriptures. All of the Scripture is authored ultimately by the Holy Spirit. He gives us the words of Jesus in every line of the text. Now, what do we get from Scripture? What things as, as believers do we receive from the Scripture? Let me give you a quick list. Number one, it's profitable for us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, right? It provides hope. Number two, Romans 15, 4, Paul says, for whatever was written in former days, talking about the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance, and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. Number three, it produces salvation. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from what? The Word of Christ. Number four, and this is where it really hits home for us, it protects against false teaching. It protects against false teaching. Psalm 119, 105. The psalmist says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In other words, the word prevents me from walking in darkness. It prevents me from falling into error. So what is the best way to combat false belief? The scriptures. 
The word of God, the text, the, the word of God. Let me say something about this for a moment. This is a commitment that you have to be willing to make. Okay? When we're talking about learning the text, this is a commitment. It's a decision that you have to decide to do. It's not something that comes easily. It's not something that comes naturally. I'll hear people be like, yeah, well, I'm just not naturally like wound up that way. No one is. No one is. No one is just naturally like, hmm, Netflix or Bible study. It, it's not, it's right, let's just be honest. I'm a, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher. I love the word of God, I've committed my life to it. And it, it, in the evening after dinner, after our kids are down, I wanna turn the TV on. It's a decision that you have to make. It's a commitment that you have to make. And some of you may be thinking, well, well, that's easy for you to say because it is your job. You have all this time in the world to do it, right? I mean, I have a job, I have a busy life. I, I can't find time to study the word of God. Let me talk for just a moment, okay, no judgment. But let me talk for a moment about why the I don't have time is maybe not the most convincing reason. <laughs> I think we can all agree that this year, 2020, has been the weirdest, crappiest year <laughs> in modern human history, that's right? Not false, and that's not false teaching. It's not. That's true. That's just verifiable fact. <laughs> all of God's people said, Amen. yes, absolutely. Now, one of the things that has made this year particularly weird is the same thing that is causing all of you to have to wear a mask. That is COVID-19. When it hit, everything went down uh, on lockdown. I mean, it didn't happen right away, but, but when it happened, it happened. Do you remember the time we were using the, the, the term shelter in place? No one even says that anymore. <laughs> It's all social distancing now because we got over sheltering in place. But shelter in place was like the big catchphrase for a while. A lot of jobs either stopped or they moved you to work from home. All of the evening time activities in your lives, sports, church stuff, community stuff, restaurants, movies, which I've seen some of those are opening up now again. Praise the Lord. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all of this stuff stopped. Everything stopped, and all of a sudden, unless you were a medical worker, a first responder, or someone who was in an essential service, your life became very different, like almost overnight, and everyone in those categories all of a sudden had a bunch of extra time, <laughs> right? Now, let me ask this with no judgment. How many of you who are too busy to become students of God's Word rigorously studied the Bible over the last six months? Right now, again, no judgment, but the answer is almost certainly not many. You had more time than ever in your life, probably than you will ever have again in your life. More excuses to say no to all of the things that the, the social standards uh, implore you to be a part of. You had every excuse to say no, and yet there still wasn't a whole lot of Bible study probably happening. And here's why, because it has nothing to do with your commitments and everything to do with your conviction. It either matters or it doesn't. You either decide to do it or you decide not to do it. There's, there's no, there's no in-betweens. And, and listen, there are no excuses here at City on a Hill because we've taken them all away from you. We've taken them all away. Most of you know that I, apart from, from this on Sunday mornings and, and a variety of other things, one of the things I'm responsible for here is I lead the Bible study ministry at City on a Hill. So if you're in a Bible study at City on a Hill, uh, either a, a Sunday morning or Wednesday life Bible studies, what we call them, Sunday school, uh, or a Wednesday night when I was teaching through the New Testament, 
You were studying through a lesson that I wrote, that I prepared for you, and I, and I do it in such a way where you don't have to do any of the heavy lifting. All the commentary is there for you. You just got to read the text, read the commentary, answer the questions. We study verse by verse through the scriptures. In fact, during COVID, we, we covered the entire book of Colossians. If you were in a Bible study during that time, you read and studied every word of Colossians. We're back in Genesis now, which is where we were before COVID started. And so, but maybe you're thinking, you know what, I can't do that. I can't be in a group because of social distancing, because I'm trying to be responsible or I have of health issues. Fine, we have Zoom meetings. <laughs> we have them all throughout the week. And, and they're great. Uh, can't be at any of the committed times? Great. I've recorded the lessons on a video on YouTube for you to watch. At any point, you can watch. I've taken away all the excuses. There, and, 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 and I do that because I, it matters to me. This matters to us as a church. The putting together the New Testament class that I did on Wednesday nights that James mentioned. There are 45 sessions, 45 classes, almost an entire year's worth. If you did one a, a week, you would have almost a year of Bible class to watch. They are all online. They are all free. They are all there. What is preventing you from learning the scriptures. It's not a lack of resources, and it's certainly not a lack of time. You see, we can scream all day long, resist the false teacher, say no to the false teacher, but how will God's people know who they are or what is false if they don't know what is truth? You won't. And you'll end up hearing some preacher go, well, yeah, well, but, but uh, 15,000 people got saved last year under my ministry, and if you'll give me another million dollars, I'll see another 15,000 come to faith. And you'll go, well, I don't know, that sounds pretty good to me. I'm, I'm up for that. Right. <laughs> How do we know what is false if we don't know what is truth? First, we have to hold fast to his word. But secondly, we have to hold fast to his work. So James talked a moment ago about how false teachers often do a lot of good things, Right. And it's not that God judges us based on what we do, but what we believe. And that is absolutely true. Don't get that mixed up, right? It is your belief that saves, not your works. But let me tell you this, your belief motivates your works. And so if you are not rightly believing, you will know that by a lack of holding fast to his works. Verse 26, he says, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end. To him I give authority. The one who conquers, the one who keeps the things that I have set out for you to do. Let me give you a truth. This is how they tie together. You can't keep the works of Christ if you don't know the words of Christ. This is why, again, the Bible matters. Scripture is meant not just to inform you, but to change you, to transform you. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Let me read this again and, and include this last part. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training righteousness. I just read that. Verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The scripture is intended to change you, to move you into action. Why does this matter? It's not because it saves you, but it matters because it mattered to Jesus. And if it mattered to Jesus, that's good enough for me. It matters to him here in Revelation 2. It matters to him in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. This is, by the way, the verse from which we get our name. Sitting on a hill, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Check this out. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your intellectualism that they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, your works get noticed, and people go, huh, interesting. We hold fast to His Word, and we hold fast to His works. And in doing so, check this out, we resist false teaching. We resist. Now, this all happens within the context of community, which is, again, another fail-safe of resisting false teacher. You're doing these things in community with other people of God, such that when you come to the Scriptures and God gives you a word, love it when people say, God gave me a word. He did too, for me, the, the Bible. Right, but, but when that happens and you bring it to a study and you're like, you know what, I, I think that in Revelation, um, the beast is credit cards, then people can say, hey, you know what, I, I, I love that you're studying the word, but, but maybe that's not the best interpretation. Credit cards are, are horrible and they're doing a number on our country, but they're not the beast of Revelation. Right? So th- this is how this works. We resist false teaching in the context of community by holding fast to his words and his works. And in doing so, we conquer And there's a blessing attached to this, right? Jesus says, I'm going to give you authority over the nations, a rod to rule, the morning star. I don't have time to unpack what those things mean right now, but let me just tell you, they're things you want. They're things you want. Those are things that you want Jesus to give you. Jesus blesses those who resist. It was true then in Thyatira. It is true today at City on a Hill. He is asking us, will you resist Jezebel? Will you learn my words and treasure my words and hold fast to them? And will you continue with my works? Remember, incomplete or false information can be deadly. We've got to get the whole truth. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank you for the opportunity to come and just sit before you, to open your scripture and, and to be challenged in so many different ways, but at the same time encouraged, Lord. We take great joy in knowing that you are on your throne, that you are sovereignly ruling, and even when this world looks so out of sorts and so chaotic and so broken, and it is, Lord, all of those things, you have not lost control, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you are still on your throne and that we can trust you. Even in the midst of all of this, we can trust you because you are our protector, our redeemer, And you will keep us to the end, Lord. Help us love your word more. Help us desire to know more of what you have said for us. How we pray that you will be with us this morning and for this this next service as your people continue to come in and that uh, in the midst of a fear-driven world that we live in right now, that you would break the bonds of fear and let us walk in your truth, Lord. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.